but the world is changing. What was sexy 40 years ago is no longer relevant today. But what is relevant tomorrow, you will not know what it is today. Welcome to the First Gen Mastery Podcast, where we empower first-generation immigrants to master the path to abundance and freedom through real estate investing. We are your hosts, Austin Wong and Aman Shahi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the First Gen Mastery Podcast. Today, we have a very special and amazing guest. He is the founder and CEO of Cashflow Portal. He is an immigrant who made his way from a software engineer to a real estate investor and a business owner. Welcome to the show, Perry Jim. How are you doing, Perry? How are you doing, folks? It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Let's get right into it then. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey coming to the U.S.? What was that like? Yeah, I came to America when I was 11 years old, arrived in JFK Airport in New York. And I spent two years in New York City, living in a pretty humble apartment with my parents. Moved to Georgia, where my parents had a restaurant. Moved to Louisville, Kentucky, my last year in high school. Um, and then after that, I went to Duke in North Carolina for college. And then after that, I came to the West Coast, where I live right now in Seattle, Washington. So share us about your mindset that you had when you were a kid, when you came to U.S. Yeah, so good question. I definitely don't know any English when I came. <laughs> it's actually funny. When I came, it was 1999. Mm -hmm. So I was 11 years old. And on the plane, <laughs> I don't even know what restroom is in English. So I told the flight attendant that, hey, I want to go to El Baño. And it wasn't until I arrived in the U.S. that this was Spanish. It's not English. So I didn't know any English before I came. When I was in China, I was a good student. I was top of my class. I was the class president. And fourth grade is when I came to the U.S. And in China, there are class presidents. And then there's the president of presidents because there are multiple mm -hmm. classes. And so I was that role. So it definitely was bittersweet to leave China at the time mm -hmm. where I was enjoying all the success. And back in the day, they didn't teach you English. So yeah. I didn't know any English when I came. I remember that as well. So I came to the States when I was 14 years old and with very limited <laughs> English skills. And luckily I was with a full of school of students who none of them are international. So it was just a group of small American kids in the middle of nowhere in Illinois. That was how <laughs> that was how my first encounter with the U.S. was. And for me, even I came to JFK for the first time, and I was trying to find how to go out of the airport and trying to get the Uber, any kind of taxi. But luckily, somebody was trying to pick me up, and they were looking for me where I am. I'm looking for where the exit is. I'm trying to talk to the guy, somebody over there. You're like, just go there, go there. Can I use your phone? He corrected me with the English. You have to speak it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but when I came out of the airport, I'm like, oh, my God, which place is that? <laughs> and I lived in Jersey for six months. Then I moved to West Coast. <laughs> but luckily, I knew some English because in India, they teach you English. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah. 
And so tell yep. us, like, how was your journey from being 11 year old to being an engineer? And what was your mindset at that time? What do you want in your life? Yeah, it's a good question. What did I want when I was 11 years old? I think as a kid, I was definitely very achievement oriented, have been a good student pretty much all my life. When I was 11 or 12, I lived in New York City for two years. And so there was this like library. And in that library, there is a section, maybe two sections with Chinese books and everything else was English books. And because this is Chinatown, New York, I developed the, all the Chinese books. I was pretty good at writing in Chinese in fourth grade. Mm. I was supposed to compete in the state writing competition, won the city, supposed to go to state. But then I didn't know any English. I was good in Chinese. So yeah, I remember that I read all the Chinese books in those two bookshelves and didn't touch any of the English books. So that's like another two years delay on my English learning. So then when I went to Augusta, Georgia, there was no ESL program. And that's when I had to learn English, basically like, otherwise I couldn't communicate with anyone. My parents own a restaurant. They work very hard. They work 364 days a year, except for Thanksgiving. So that's one day off. I graduated valedictorian. I basically entered mm -hmm. middle school and then I graduated and then so did high school. And I think I went from being very good at writing to being very good at math because I changed my identity, mm -hmm. basically. I was the nerdy Asian kid in school, the uh, math Olympias. And that's what I did a lot in high school, a lot of math competitions, a lot of hanging out with the math nerds, went to the governor's mm -hmm. honors. Then finally... During high school, again, going back to this kind of achievement-orientedness, I graduated from Louisville, Kentucky, because we actually had to move to Louisville, Kentucky, with 15 AP exams taken. So I was the AP state scholar of my state. There's a one female and one male representative. And one thing going to Duke afterwards, one thing that dawned on me, which is when I came home with the report cards, I will have straight A's. And my parents, being first-generation immigrants, didn't understand the significance of straight A's. Mm -hmm. They thought that was taken for granted. They didn't know what anyone else got. That's their assembled size of one. So they thought, oh, yeah, high school education is easy. Supposed to get straight A's. Cool. And they will sign it without knowing what the courses were. <laughs> and they don't know English, so they, they didn't know what classes I was taking. So to the point that I was the one signing my own report cards because <laughs> I was so disappointed. They didn't know what these are. So anyway, so that was that. Thank you for sharing, Perry. I think that was a lot to unpack. Like that being having that identity of being a straight-A student and valedictorian and all of that very achievement-oriented mindset, which I can totally relate coming mm -hmm. from someone who's also from China. What my parents did for me was that they wanted me to do a good, to have a good uh, sport like that I'm really good at. So they sent me to a table tennis school where okay. I started playing when I was five years old. And then I went to a professional ping pong school for years <laughs> trying to be the top or anything. I wasn't that super talented, but it was, it's almost like that achievement oriented mindset was I wouldn't say in our DNA, but it was like part of the culture. I feel like ingrained at least with me. So that part, I felt like I could really relate. And 
coming from that background, that experience of having straight A's, you mentioned that your parents doesn't really get the significance of that. What do you think? Why that is? What was the gap that you felt there? My dad was a high school teacher. He was very smart in China. He taught geometry and geography, so two completely unrelated subjects.、Yeah. He knew I was smart. I guess when I was in middle school, because in middle school in the U.S., you were taught, you know, algebra or whatever, geometry、yeah. or high school geometry. But I think even in sixth grade, he gave me all the high school textbooks directly from China. So I just、mm -hmm. self-study in the restaurant while I was dressing. So they value education. I think if I have to reflect back, they feel very flimsy in this world called America. They feel their presence is not significant, and they are afraid. It's almost like they're always walking on eggshells. They're afraid of touching some something or taking off someone that they don't want to get in trouble, and so that's their mindset. I、Is、think they're afraid. I, yeah, go ahead. I think that was because when you become a parent and you totally new different country where you don't even speak the language, that affects your mindset a lot, and you don't think about yourself. You just thinking about your child. How is gonna be easy, safe, or not? And that I think affects your parents as well because we are young. We can go to any other country and still survive. For when you have a child, you don't speak the language. It's really hard for only for the mindset. I think one of the limiting beliefs that you cannot survive there. That I think they were suffering from that kind of trauma in their mind. Yeah, and now that I'm older and hopefully a little bit wiser. I learned that children imitate their parents,、yeah. and so when, for better or for worse, regardless of the reason, if they were afraid in their actions with their kid around,、yeah. that's going to also cause their children to、yeah. have a limiting mindset. Now,、yeah. I am older. I have a lot of friends who were born here, and their parents may not need to be immigrants. Their parents also don't know how to use technology. They also don't know how to use iPhone. That's fair, but I think there's a something more to immigrant parents,、mm -hmm. which is that they also have a language barrier. So it's like double whammy. They just did not know how to almost navigate the world, and that kind of fear is、yeah. very contagious to their kids. Yeah. So after I graduated, I basically had to end some of that fear. It took me forever. To realize that I should quit my W two job and became an entrepreneur, that was not easy. And some of that is to realize that hey, there is a alternative universe that my parents are not used to. But let me go out and try to make that happen.、Um, I live now ten minutes from my parents. We have an amazing relationship. I see him. I see them every week, and I know they love me and they support me throughout my journey. But it's what I will say is. Is that kind of we come from different backgrounds? We have different、mm -hmm. values, and we can talk about some of the values. But yeah, it's not easy. For one thing that you said, I felt a lot of relate. I felt really related to that is the fact that if you want to be an entrepreneur from W two, it's not so much about what exactly you're gonna do, but more about looking at your past and see exactly what was holding your back. And 
I feel like that's exactly what happened to me last year when I felt very stuck. I worked in the W two. I have no idea why I'm doing this, but I'm doing this. But I don't know what I'm gonna do. And that feeling, I don't know what it is, why that was, until I look really hard and see. Oh, like those were some of the reasons why. I, when I think that was just being a perks of being an immigrant. <laughs> That's very <laughs> true. Like you have to be super aware of some of the things that have changed us. Yes. Like we can't just go on life from one country to another and autopilot this. <laughs> like we need to look back and see what were the old behavior patterns and thoughts that were impacting our mind. Yeah. So I just want to commend you for having that great awareness when you're trying to think about what who are you going to be and what you're going to do. And also you mentioned about from being an engineer, I don't know, you may be making 200k, 300k to being from leaving the W2 to start being an entrepreneur. It was hard. But if you think about your family, they want my child to be make that much of money and everything. And even if you say you can make five times the money, but they still be like I want you to be happy, not stressful, not having a stressful life. It's okay. You make less money, it's okay. But you still <laughs> settled in your life. You know, get settled by 30, marriage, have kids and all this thing. That should be the that, I think that's the immigrant mindset of the parents. What do you think? Yeah, that is. Um they are super happy now, but yeah, that pivotal decision to leave Not looking back was like foolish. Why did I think that long? But back then it was not easy. So can we unpack that? Just that spark of a moment where you said, "You know what? I am gonna do this a little bit more." Like, what were the thoughts that was going through your mind during that period? Like, why did you wanted to do the transition to get out of a really good, pay, a good high paying job to doing yeah. something like riskier, yeah. traditionally speaking? Yeah. I will lay out the context. I was a high performer again my whole life. I felt I was pretty achievement oriented. Um, COVID happened. We were stuck at home. A bunch of company had some layoffs. They tried to keep talent of the people who were left, so they gave me a retention bonus. And then a few months later, the business started picking up. The stocks start rebounding. They gave me another retention bonus. At the time, Liv actually knew that I was um, working on the side project, and they let me do it while giving me a retention bonus because they know, I right, okay, it's probably time to quit. So they do that, <laughs> and then one director left, and so I was I got another manager. They gave me another retention. I think they didn't know the previous director or gave me a retention bonus. So I was like. Just like double on top of each other, so I was like making a lot, and like when I left, I basically took a ninety percent pay cut to to work on my startup. So that was the stage. So I remember two thousand twenty one, still during COVID, something started to open up, and I've been like moonlighting on my startup for a year at this point, or maybe a year and a half. I took on my parents. Uh, they got vaccinated, so I was like, okay, let's let's meet at, at a restaurant and say Korean barbecue. And I want to see them with the idea. This is March of 2021, so a year after I started the company. I said, "Hey, I am thinking that six months from now, I'm going to quit. I'm gonna raise money for the startup." 
And then my mom was super worried. They're like, uh, you just got like multiple races. And my dad just, you have to leave now. <laughs> so they, so that's awesome. So I was like, okay, that's I got really one awesome. supporter. You have to leave now. So I did stay for another six months. And then when I left, you know, now looking back, my mom is like super happy and they have been very supportive parents. So that's like kind of the logistics of what happened in terms of the mindset. I knew that this is going to happen even like a year in advance, but I was strategizing on how to tell my parents about it. They also knew that I'm working on this side project. They thought that I should just finish all my bonuses before I leave. I think if I have to give one advice to the audience, what was the tipping point? The tipping point is that when you get really good at a craft, at some point you realize that you are good at it. And then you look around, you're like, I'm really good at this. And I don't think someone else is better than me. So I think there must be something here, right? One tipping point is we use a large syndication software. So our software is helps GPs raise money and it's a software service SaaS product. And we use another software the year before to raise money. And then the following year, I use my own software. I couldn't disclose to other people that I own the company because I still was a live. And then my investors like, oh, whatever you're using this year, it was better than last year. I was like, that cannot be true. Uh, that cannot be true because the other company is a $1.5 billion company. And so at that point, I was like, okay, well, there's something here. I should probably uh, quit. So we quit. We apply to YC. And, and what I meant to say is at some point, you get really good at the craft. And then people start telling you that, hey, this is something special and don't take it for granted. You should just plunge in, go all in. And even that, I vividly remember I was, I went to dinner with one of my closest friends and I sat down with them. I said, should I quit this month or should I wait six more months to quit in early 2022? And they say, if I quit six months from now, I will have this amount left to be paid. If I quit now, then I put all this on the table, but I can raise money. What if the economy goes down six months from now? I may not raise as much money and so on. And they say, in most of my life, I imagine the immigrant story where mm. when I had nothing and had my back against the wall, I tend to do better. And I was like, okay, you're right. When I had nothing in high school, I did do better. So let's let's go back to nothing. And yeah. so that was the equilibrium. So the following Monday, I went back and I told my manager that I am quitting. Yeah. And when do you look back in your time? Do you think, oh, I have come all the way so far in my life? Do you remember that time? And what do you think about that? I think I am very grateful for all the lucky pieces and breadcrumbs I accumulated, I inherit the ability to reason and think from my parents. And I developed three values I have in life. And I was telling Austin about this. One value is be competent. Second value is don't be afraid. And then yeah. third value is be kind. Yeah. Okay. I think I got the genes to be the intelligence to be competent from my parents. My parents were very kind and we don't even know what it feels like to be unkind. 
when I was growing up. And then the second part is not being afraid. I think that's the thing I really needed to work on. Yeah. And so got all of the rough ingredients for my parents and that's the DNA I got from my parents. Once I start after graduation, I work at a bunch of companies. I made some really good friends. And then that second set of friends that I have will be considered my second set of family where they are the one who gave me career mentorship and not my parents necessarily. I know whom to turn to depending on what kind of mental advice I needed, right? When it comes to hiring someone, I usually turn to my second you know, professional network for advice. I don't really turn to my parents on how do you train an employee or how to hire talent. When it comes to being fair in, in terms of compensation to all the employees, like a compensation ban, for example, that is something I got advice say, from a director of engineering at Lyft. So I learned how to get different advice from different ty types of people. And uh, from that perspective, from your W2 perspective, how was your journey to find your first job in US? Because I remember that's really hard for your first job mm -hmm. as an engineer is really hard. Everybody's like, oh, we want that much of experience, even for the entry level job. So how was okay. your journey at that time? Yeah. Yes, I am an immigrant. I think I am luckier than most immigrants in that sense. Because I came here when I was 11, I was pretty Americanized in terms of my resume. Oh, my resume is I went to American high school, American middle school. I went to Duke. I'm basically American through and through. So when it comes to a job, it's just like, yeah, I have the job lined up when I was in, in, in college. And mm -hmm. so that's not necessarily that of a obstacle. Uh, people were like making a bet whether I speak Chinese because I'm like half American and half Chinese when it comes to the way I act. I'm very American. So they didn't know I, I sp spoke uh, Chinese. I just want to comment on the fact that when you mentioned the type of pivotal moments in your life, it all relates back to your own identity and the very rooted experiences in you, like from your parents' upbringing. And I feel like a lot of people are, when we're making choices, we think that we are the ones that are making choices right now with our conscious mind. But a lot of the time is a lot of the things that we have experienced that build up to that decision. And to your point on having a second part of your professional family to help you navigate the future waters on these having startups and making all of those decisions, it's very helpful to know that you have those as your backup. So I think that having such a network is such a great way to help you to be supported when you're doing something like having a startup that's backed by YC. That's very incredible. And yeah. can you tell us a little bit about your mindset shift from being an, from being an air manager to invest in real estate. I know you talked about your change from your W2 to business owner. What about to real estate investing? How did you get that sparked up? To your first deal. Yeah. So when I, so my parents own real estate in China. My parents have been very frugal financially and they, they, taught me the importance of money. When I was a teenager, I was 
rebellious. I was like, I don't care about money. I want to just study. I want to be a great engineer. I actually didn't want to be a great engineer. I was just like, I want to be a really good like student, whatever, or like a physicist or whatever. Um, I actually started as a pre-med because my parents want me to be a pre-med. And then I decided that, you know what? No, pre-med is not for me. And my mom did have the foresight to talk to her brother. And they say, the world is changing. What is sexy? What was sexy 40 years ago is no longer relevant today. But what is relevant tomorrow, you will not know what's uh, what it is today. And the best way to know what's relevant tomorrow is give your kid the freedom to listen to what their peers are doing because they know where the wind is blowing. And my mom is is smart, a very intelligent woman. So they just let me study whatever. So I started as pre-med, then went to math major, and then math was really hard. So I went to e-com. Econ was too easy, so I settled on computer science. So I graduated with like math, computer science, and econ. So yeah, so there's that. So anyway, how did I get into real estate? I got into real estate because my mom wanted me to buy a condo. I bought a condo in the Bay Area about five years after, after graduation, saved up enough money to buy a condo, down payment. I live in two of the, I live in one of the rooms, the other two were rented out. So I was house hacking. Then it was that one deal, uh, the very first single family that allowed me to think, oh, this is not that hard. I was basically paying less than my rent if I were to rent a one bedroom. So I started reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, do all the Bigger Packets podcasts as well. Then I bought a five bedroom house in Seattle, live in one of the rooms, rent out the other four. And my rent was effectively like 800 bucks. And then if you take all the tax depreciation, all that, it's basically essentially zero. So I was like, this is really not that hard. And yeah. again, immigrant parents, immigrant family, I was okay living with housemates. Then I start buying one single family every nine months. So mm. I had six single families after four years and I basically maxed out my debt to income ratio at that point. It's because these are like Seattle houses. They're not cheap. Yeah. So I want to go into multifamily. We bought a seven unit apartment complex. We get some money, joint venture with our coworkers. We got a 68% return in a year and a half. And then we want to go bigger. And then the first failure came, which is we tried to buy this 20 apartment, 20 unit apartment complex in Seattle. And we lost. We lost because the person, the company that wanted have a private management company in Seattle. And so we had the same price, but they owned, I think it was like $200 million of real estate in Seattle. So they have a better resume. And being the competitor person that I was, I said, I went to this mentorship group bootcamp before I didn't sign up because I wanted to do it on my own. But now let's go back to that bootcamp. And regardless what they say, we're going to sign up. And so that's what we did. So we joined a mentorship program a year after we joined, nine months after we joined, we bought our first syndication as a general partner, three point, it's a it's 13.5 million, 172 units in Dallas, Texas. I raised 3.5 out of the $4.3 million on that first syndication. I guess you can call that. Now I got very lucky people again, 
it's one of those things at the time I raised money is okay, cool. I thought this is good. I guess we raised the money and we closed the deal. It wasn't until a year or two years later when I asked everyone, oh, how much did you raise on your first deal? I said, I raised 3.5. They was like, oh, that's really impressive. So I never thought that was impressed. I just had to de- do it because I need to close the deal. And so it was those little things that are like, okay, objectively speaking, that was pretty good for my first deal. Yeah. 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 So it's those little things. So that was my first deal. It was not easy. It was not hard either, but it was just like, I had to close it. <laughs> That's all it is. And did you raise from your friends and family for the first deal or more like you had to go to different media, bring other investors and all these things? I did not have MailChimp when I got my first deal. Mm-hmm. I did not have any CRM. I had a spreadsheet. I was BCCing people. And so I raised the money because... um in retrospect, I was very lucky. Live one IPO six months before. So yes, I was timing it. Basically, as soon as I have the first deal, I time it in a way such that the lift, the lockup period is over. So everyone just starts selling their stocks. And I was a good employee at work. So my coworkers really trusted me. And many years later, they are still investors. Um, we sold that first deal. So that was a very good exit. And then and then those people continue to invest. Almost like 90% of them continue to invest every deal after that as well. Yeah. So what I want to tell people is that your parents give you the DNA. Your parents give you the mindset. Your immigrants story shaped who you were. And that's that defined the very first chapter. Yeah. It's important to retroactively rationalize what happened you can take the good things out of it or you can take the bad things out of it but that's up to you is there is this chasm of how you define the past i define my past as something that i was very thankful and i am very appreciative of what i have without that those difficulties i wouldn't have this kind of characteristic of being, I don't mind doing the shittiest job at the company Mm -hmm. because I don't have an ego. I don't mind just doing the most bottom, most basic thing because maybe someone will say, oh, that's not what a founder is supposed to do. You're supposed to enjoy life, navigate everything. No, you're supposed to do the shittiest, the thing that nobody nobody else wants to do. So, you know, that's literally what an immigrant supposed to do and that's okay that's easy i don't mind doing that as a yeah like i i got my start from house hacking living with housemates i don't mind that i live frugally i don't mind that so know that but then have the almost the open-mindedness to to know what's out there and being not and not being afraid to go for it that's what i will say thank you perry that was very inspiring and i just want to comment on what you said. And I think this is, if there's one takeaway that people should take away from this episode is exactly what you've just laid out is that there's on this path to success, it's not so much as the tips and tricks up your sleeve, but more about going through this journey, understand your identity and develop those values as your goal. Like you said, being competent, be kind, do not be afraid. And as long as you make decisions around those values, I feel like beginning from a house hack to where you are now, it's like, I can see that evolving every year exponentially, but we all have to start somewhere. And 
Yeah. And so I'm, I just want to ask a question to both of you, to Austin and mm-hmm. Perry. You both share your failures in your life that affected your mindset that you want to achieve something really great because you cannot be so big without losing everything. I'm asking first, Perry, you share first. Yeah. Can you repeat the question? Can you share some yeah. sort of, you had a like a failure in your life that affected you a lot that you want to achieve something like Mount Everest in your life. Because that moment always come to everybody. There's no successful person in this world who achieved something without losing so many things. Yeah. Austin, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That, that that does seem to be a more abstract question, <laughs> a pretty meta one. I feel like one thing that got me to the lowest of my point is, it's actually last year. It's pretty recent, I think. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I was, I was in the middle of waiting on my green card. I was on my F1B. I had a job. Everything seems fine. But my inside just feel like dead. I just feel like every two weeks pass by so quickly because I feel like the only thing that's changing in my life is through the increment of the paychecks. And that drove me crazy. And I don't know why, I don't know what I could do that to get me out of that state. And Mm -hmm. that's why I, on a limb, I just went travel to Miami and I met a bunch of people there. And that one thing led to another that led to a personal development training that I ended up taking part of. And then to another two educational program in real estate that Perry, you were mentioning, I also had that determination. You know what? Let me just do this. I know that I needed it. So I spent a ton of money last year just investing myself. I was like, you know what? It's either going to be another sort of house hack or single family yeah. or this. And I'd much rather be in a different state of mind than just having another house. I feel like if I were to answer that question, that would be yeah a big moment that I feel like I needed to come over. Yeah. How about you, Perry? Yeah, great question. Sometimes failure for me is not at the moment. I think when you're in the shittiest moment, you probably don't realize you are in there. Mm-hmm. You just, you're so focused on solving the problem. And so if I have to reason about the fate of the company, the first year and a half were definitely the toughest. Yeah, that's definitely the toughest. I went to a lot of real estate conferences. I told people that, yeah, we're starting on this investor portal thing. And just, yeah, at the time there were like a dozen competitors already. Mm-hmm. Who are you to start your company? Getting a demo was very difficult. They asked all kinds of questions, which I know those questions were intention. But they were with the, also, it's a little bit like try to throw me off a little bit. So I know those. And one of the hardest things about entrepreneurs, and I do think that real estate syndication is a mm-hmm. form of entrepreneurship, where buying a multifamily is a form of business because you have a business plan, right? Yeah. Is that that very first deal is probably the hardest. The second one gets hot easier. The third one gets even easier until, you know, there's a recession, then you have to relearn the whole thing. So I do think that for the startup, now in retrospect, nowadays, when I see a a problem, I was just like, okay, cool. That's a problem. We just need to solve it. You develop this meta point that no problem is too hard to conquer. And when I think about the problems that I had in the early days of the startup, I was like, what kind of like person was willing to put up with that. <laughs> I was like, oh, that was me. But at the time, I was just like, okay, that was normal. Yeah, 
you have customers that come to you, they will they will say a lot about another competitor. And then they will say, that's why we don't choose that one. And we choose this one, which is another competitor. You don't say that to me, who's also the third option, but you never mentioned me. So they will do that kind of stuff, and which is fine. But yeah, at the time, it was just like, yeah, we're not that big. We're still not that big. And I think it's right. okay to have that mindset. But we are so getting there. We want to... Yeah, have the mindset of being staying small. You always feel like the underdog. And the, what else I was going to say? It, it also taught me that even if everything is peaceful, I realize I'm very good at manufacturing almost insults. <laughs> to I'm very good at manufacturing things to put chips on my shoulder. Like when things are too peaceful. I said, this is not good. Something bad is going to happen. Let's just stir the pot a little bit so that we feel like more is at stake. Yeah. So that's what I will say as well. That's great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Perry, to share your story. I feel like this is the best episodes <laughs> that could come out. I think what I feel like one thing that I want our listener to get out of from these type of conversations that we have is the fact that we are able to show the stories and our mindset of the changes that we go through, not just looking at the end result of what you have accomplished, which is a ton, right? <laughs> High achiever and everything. But it's really more about those little moments these that really what's going through our heads and what have shaped us to make those transitions. So I really appreciate you coming here and having these type of authentic conversations with us today. Yeah, thank you. I have one more story about just a quick note for having that almost second parent that gives you great advice on work and so on. The first way I quit my job, we raised some money, we raised a ton of money, and we're ready to hire really good engineers, right? So I was a engineer manager. I never had to set a compensation band. So I don't know what like a junior engineer should get paid, a senior engineer should get paid. I do know what my engineers got paid at work, but I don't know how to go about setting the band, you know, what level get paid what. Oh, you know, could I go to my parents on that? No. And so can I go to the internet on that? I don't think the source is real. Can I go to Y Combinator on that? Yes, which I also got some advice. But I was very lucky that I had a mentor, an unofficial mentor, actually, who was an engineering director at Lyft. So I drove for, it's a, it's supposed to be a 25 minute drive, but I remember that day because of traffic is like an hour drive. So I drove to meet, get coffee with this person and engineering director. And they say something to me. They say, because at that time we interview a few people and I was trying to play what's called the min max game, which is how much they're currently get paid or how much they want to get paid. And we're going to pay a little bit more than what they want to get paid. So that's that. Right. Yeah. And so the engineer director say that. Don't do that because what happens is that's going to lead to an uneven compensation distribution and the minority groups, aka immigrants, will get the least because they don't negotiate very much. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. And so you have to be very fair. This is the offer. Take it or leave it. Okay. And so the other thing is higher. Being higher is a binary decision. You're either higher or you're not higher. It's not like you did so-so on an interview, so we're going to give you a low offer, or you did really well on an interview, we're going to give you an offer, either higher or no higher. And then after that, it's based on their, their pedigree, if they got a master's or bachelor's and so on, or the relevant skill set. So that weekend, we were evaluating two candidates. 
the first candidate CMU grad master's degree did super well on the interview. The second candidate did well on the interview, but not as well as the first candidate. But there's something about the second candidate I really liked, right? Something about it. And they were also immigrant, so so that's that. And then so. Without this mentor's explanation, I will have given a outrageous offer for the first person, a low ball offer to the second person, and so what happens is that the first person they rejected us because they got an offer from Facebook, so they turned us down. So what I did though is I actually gave the same offer to both people. Okay, the first person rejected us. Fine, it's fine. The second person accepted us. Little did I know that a few months later, that person actually rejected Amazon to join us. Imagine I gave a low ball. Imagine that, and then imagine, and then fast forward a year from that point on, they became an engineer manager, managing eight of our engineers. They became a high performer. That was the single most pivotal coffee sh- meeting I ever had. A one hour drive, and that's my second family. That's the people I meet right for my work. And they became my mentor because I was a high performer at work, and so on. So, a lot of these things are mutual.、Yeah. Do I expect that had to happen? No, hell no. Like I, I never expect that I was gonna learn that in that coffee、yeah. meeting. That person also ended up becoming an investor in our company right at that coffee shop. What I meant to say is, being an immigrant, you probably have one of the best attributes that you could have, which is being humble. Yeah, and that humility, you get rewarded. Many times over, and if you treat that humility and like carry that forward, you get a reward. The company gets rewarded. People who appreciate that, you know, will be super loyal to you. But that's that. And Perry, thank you so much. That's really inspirational. And thank you so much for your knowledge and、mm-hmm. for your wisdom. And if somebody wants to reach out to you, like to contact you or to invest with you to learn from you, how can they? Yeah. So. You can just check out Perry at CashWorldPortal dot com. That's my email address, or you can go to CashWorldPortal dot com. In the upper right corner, there is a scheduled demo. That's how you can reach us. And、yep. what are the current book are you reading? Yeah, right now I was before I was reading Atomic Habits. I like that book. And then I was reading this author. My favorite book, entrepreneur book for the audience, is there's this very silly book. It's called How to Become rich by Felix. He was a one of the richest person and the richest person at one point in UK. And this is actually a autobiography to some extent、mm-hmm. of a being an entrepreneur. In the it detail all the perils of being an entrepreneur. So I really like that book. Got it. Thank you so much for being us being with us here today, Perry. It's a pleasure having this conversation. And it, hearing it you dropping all these insights.、Here. And it was an honor、yeah. having you here. No problem. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. It was、so、my pleasure、Perry. as well. And we'll see you later. All right. All right we'll see you in the next one. That's it for this episode of First Gen Mastery. Tune in next week for more insights, inspirations, and actionable tips to help you master your path to abundance and freedom. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>